Hi, this is Kale Clark. Welcome to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio mobile app. I'm so glad that you're with me today for this journey of exploring, understanding, explaining, and defending our Catholic faith. This is part two of our mini-series on the book of Jonah, which is a mini-book from one of the many prophets, the minor prophets, <laughs> M-I-N-I. When I say mini, I don't mean a lot, I mean a little. And it's a small book, but it really packs a powerful punch. And so today we're going to look at chapter two, and uh, let's let's just actually back it up just ever so slightly uh, to the last verse of chapter one, because this is, of course, the pivotal moment when the great fish swallows Jonah into its belly. Let's check it out. This is chapter one, verse 17, and then we're going to go straight into chapter two. So if you want to open your Bibles there to Jonah, at the end of chapter one and chapter two, it says, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood was round about me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am cast out from your presence. How shall I again look upon your holy temple? The waters closed in over me. The deep was round about me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God, when my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their true loyalty, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. Okay, so that's Jonah chapter 2. Now, it's kind of funny when you read that last verse, the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. The fish obeys God right away. <laughs> uh, but Jonah, uh, not so much. Not so much. I remember reading a, a, a really interesting article uh, on Jonah chapter 2 uh, by Dr. Ekaterina Kozlova from the London School of Theology. And she really talked about how chapter 2 of Jonah is really a death liturgy for the seemingly doomed prophet Jonah. Because when you, when you read Jonah chapter 2, it's a little bit different from the rest of the book. And it's, again, a really short book, only 48 verses in total. But chapter 2 is really this psalm prayer of Jonah. So it, it's the book has this sort of narrative prose, the story of the prophet Jonah, but we take this little interlude here uh, for this prayer, which is very much like one of the Psalms. It, it, there's so many similarities, but really, it's a liturgy for his death and burial. Now, he, he doesn't die in the end, as you know, but this is really what it's all about. It, it's really Jonah's burial at sea, and God is his heavenly undertaker. You know, in the ancient world, as well as in the Bible, whenever a nation falls or an individual dies, there's so many verses in the Bible that talk about even the creation itself mourning. 
Uh, Hosea chapter 4, verses 1 to 3 is a, is a great example of that. At the beginning of Hosea chapter 4, it says, Hear the word of the Lord, O people of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. In other words, the Lord has, a, has an issue with you guys. It goes on to say, There is no faithfulness or kindness and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, killing, stealing, committing adultery, They break all bonds, and murder follows murder. Therefore the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field and the birds of the air, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. So that's that's an example of how even the creation can mourn uh, because of sin. We kind of see this in the tale of Jonah. So, Jonah is fleeing from God. He's running from God. And what does he do? He, he tries to leave Israel. He, he tries to get on a ship and go to Tarshish, which is all the way over in Spain, even though God called him to go to present-day Iraq to the people of Nineveh. And so he leaves the land. He, he goes outside of Israel, and he finds himself not only far from the land of Israel, but in the underworld. He is banished from God. He is banished from the realm of God. And so he's got, he's got this really <laughs> vertical path. He is dropping straight down like a stone in the water to Sheol. And what is Sheol, by the way? Sheol is simply the realm of the dead in the Old Testament. So when he's thrown overboard by the sailors, he is dropping like a stone. And, and, and Jonah thinks, this is it for me. This is it. And this is, and by the way, he, he's, he's alive when he's praying this prayer. He's in the belly of the sea monster, and he's remembering what, what just happened. And in Jonah chapter 2, uh, he says, My experience in the underworld, I thought it was going to be forever. I thought that was it. And so God, his dwelling place, his temple, it mentions God's temple in this chapter. It's kind of juxtaposed with the underworld of, of the, the belly of Sheol, the heart of the sea, the pit, the earth. Those are the things that you see in Jonah chapter 2. As you can see, there, there, there are many symbolic undercurrents, if you will, pun intended, in Jonah as he's thrown into the ocean. And so this really makes us think of the waters of creation in the book of Genesis. When you read the Old Testament, the waters are symbolic of life. Of course, there is no life. Without water, our bodies are what? 98% water. You need water to live. The water of life, but also the waters can bring death. And in our Genesis series on the Faith Explained, and you can uh, go to relevantradio.com and access all the episodes we talked about. In Genesis chapter 1, the waters of creation, how the Holy Spirit hovered over the waters in Genesis chapter 1. But just a few chapters later, Genesis chapter 6, 7, 8, we're looking at the flood, the waters of chaos that destroy the creation. It's a decreation, And that's exactly what's happening to Jonah. That's kind of what he's going through in microcosm, in his own life. And the scholar D. Rudman says this, the chaos waters, by their very nature, are symbolic of the absence of order and creation. In the flood, it's the reversal of creation. And even when we look at different Old Testament books, we see how when God forms the human person, it's kind of the pinnacle of his creation. That's the pinnacle of it. And death, in that sense, when a person dies, that's the reversal of God's creation. 
it, it's to be uncreated. And so uh, being thrown into these waters of chaos, the deep, that means really, again, the, the waters are seen as, as a place of chaos. Uh, the monsters always come out of the waters in the book of Revelation. And uh, it was seen as a place of demons and ghosts. And this is why when Jesus walks on the water in the New Testament, he's showing mastery over all these things. That's why they think they saw a ghost when he's walking to them on the water. He's like, no, no, it's me. And they're like, wow, he can command the wind and the waves. Amazing. When he stills the storm. And so to be thrown into this chaos, into the sea of, of Sheol, uh, is to really be almost uncreated. It's really the end. And so th this is looking really really bleak for Jonah. And so the creator God, the one who created the heavens, the earth, the, the land, and the sea, he can also uncreate and he can recreate. And so when we, again, when you look at Revelation, you look at the the decreation. There's there's creation, there's there's the decreation. God is going to renew the heavens and the earth. There's going to be a new temple. Uh, uh, and that temple is the church. Uh, there's going to be a new creation, a new heaven and earth, the, the new Jerusalem descending down out of heaven. And so this is what it's all about. And so Jonah really, this is like a burial for him. One of the things that he says in Jonah chapter 2 is, God, you, you cast me, you hurled me, you flung me into the deep. And, and that word, whenever, whenever you read about this, whenever you read about somebody being flung uh, when it comes to death or hurled, uh, it, it's usually really a bad thing. <laughs> it, it's whenever the, it talks about this in the Old Testament or in the Dead Sea Scrolls that uses this Hebrew term. Whenever it talks about humans being flung or hurled, this really usually means they they violently died and they've been interred outside of a tomb. Uh, in other words, in an inappropriate place. Uh, it could be when uh, individuals are executed and they're not buried or bodies are, are, are exhumed from the ground. And we see this in Second uh, Samuel 20, 21 and 22, Amos 8, 3, Isaiah 14, 18 and following, Isaiah 34, 3, Jeremiah 14, 16, Jeremiah 22, 19, Jeremiah 36, 30, 1 Kings 13, 24 and 25 and 28, 2 Kings 9, 25 and 26 and 10, 25. It's just all over the place just all over the place in the Old Testament. And whenever there's a, a shameful burial, this word shows up to be flung or to be, to be hurled. So th this is a sign of disrespect, as one scholar says. It's a sign of disrespect and disregard for the dead. So who would, who would this happen to? This, if your body is not buried right, if you're just kind of flung and, you know, whatever... Who, who does that happen to? Your enemies, vanquished foes, your adversaries, others who are thought to deserve contemptuous treatment, in the words of uh, S. Olean. And so this is really, when you think about this, if, if Jonah's saying, you flung me into the sea, he's kind of saying, I was your enemy, God. Uh, I had this confrontational stance towards you. I wasn't doing your will. You told me to go to the people of Nineveh. And preach to them that they might repent. I don't want to do that because these people are evil. And in the last episode of The Faith Explained, we talked about chapter 1 of Jonah. We went over some of the dastardly evil of the Ninevites. 
I'm not going to reiterate that here, but you'll just have to, to listen to it. But suffice it to say, they were pretty bad. And so they were enemies of God in a certain sense, but so was Jonah, because he didn't want to do what God called him to do. And so this is his penalty. This is his punishment. He gets buried. He gets flung into the sea, this sort of unceremonious burial at sea. And God, Yahweh himself, is his undertaker. Now, just because God throws him into the pit, he says, oh, I've been cast into Sheol. Again, that doesn't mean that that he's going to die. In, in, in the Psalms, when you read the Psalms, people talk like this sometimes. In Psalm 88, it says, you, God, have put me in the lowest pit in dark places in the depths. Now, obviously, this person lived to tell about it. Uh, it talks about being thrown into Sheol. It, it just means that, wow, things are looking pretty bleak. So he, he doesn't die. Jonah doesn't die. We know this, but he easily could have. He easily could have. And by the way, when God punishes Israel, this is another thing uh, that was pointed out in this uh, wonderful piece from Dr. Ekaterina Kozlova. When God punishes his people in the Old Testament time through exile, he allows them to be put into exile. Very often it is a punishment. And, and, and the scripture talks about the experiences of the exiles in a, in a foreign land. It's almost like a shameful disposal of a dead body. <laughs> So you're almost as good as dead, in a sense. This is a terrible punishment. Deuteronomy 29, 28, 2 Kings 13, 23, 2 Kings 17, 20, 24, verse 20, 2 Chronicles 7, 20, Amos 4, 3, Jeremiah 7, 15, Jeremiah 51, 63, and Ezekiel 16, verse 5. So he is flung by God. He is hurled by God into... He tried to escape the land of Israel, and he is instead thrown into the land from which there is no coming back, the land of Sheol, the water burial in the sea. So also, also the fact that there is water here, it, this also harkens back to the burial practices of the ancient Jews, because very often in ancient tombs, uh, water pitchers, jugs, uh, vessels like this were found very often inside of ancient tombs or just outside of the tombs. And this has to do with the washing and the anointing of the body before burial. And of course, this happened to Jesus as well. Uh, his body was cleansed and washed by Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea before he is buried. So it's very much like almost a, a comedy uh, on the burial rites. And there, there is a, a touch of comedy uh, in the book of Jonah. There's a, there's a lot of, uh, you know, it's a serious book, but there's also a lot of funny stuff that happens. And so Jewish uh, burial practices uh, come into play here. I had the great uh, privilege uh, during one of my trips to Israel to speak with uh, Dr. Raquel Haklili, who uh, passed away recently. Uh, may she rest in peace really one of the great experts of burial uh, in the Old Testament times, in ancient times, Jewish burial. And she wrote about how bodies were wrapped in shrouds, placed in coffins. Uh, there's been all kinds of different materials that have been discovered through archaeology at Jericho, where she did a lot of work there. Uh, textiles, linens found in several tombs. And so this very, very much harkens uh, to the, the burial shroud of Jesus, uh, the shroud of Turin, which I think is very likely the actual burial shroud of Jesus. The custom of wrapping the body in a shroud, and not only the, 
the body, but also a special cloth over the face. Um, that's that's important to remember because in the Gospel of John it talks about a face cloth uh, being wrapped up and put in a, in a separate place, nice and neat, uh, at the time of the resurrection. Now, what's what's interesting about that when you look at Jonah is that when Jonah descends into the sea, what does he say happens to him? He says the seaweed is quite literally wrapped around his head. Uh, this is what he says here. He says. The waters closed in over me, this is verse 5, the deep was round about me, weeds were wrapped around about my head at the roots of the mountains, and I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. So it's almost like the, the burial shroud, the weeds wrapped around him, especially around the head. Um, the symbolism is really unmissable. You're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Cale Clark. The fact that Jonah says that he's got seaweed wrapped around his head. That also reminds us of Psalm 88.15 because it, it means you can't see God. God. You're hidden from God. There's so many ancient texts that talk about uh, when you're in the grave, you, you can't see. You can't see. You're hidden from God. And so the underworld was often seen. This place of Sheol was viewed as a place of darkness and gloom. You see Psalm 88.7 on this. You can also see uh, the book of Jonah, verse two, chapter 2, verse 4, which we just looked at in verse 12. You can also look at the book of Lamentations uh, 3.5. You can look at Job, chapter 10, verses 21 and 22. Job 17.13, Job 18.18, 18, the book of Sirach 22.11. So this idea of the realm of the dead is being a place of darkness. The face is covered so that they might not see the light. And so it's really a funeral shroud for Jonah, the seaweed, and, and he can't see anything. And because he can't see God, this may suggest a sort of judgment on Jonah and his activity. So his near death is really a funeral scene. And that's what makes the fact that he survives this so much more miraculous. The fact that God has mercy on him Spits out and says, okay, you haven't been obeying my will up until this point, but hopefully that will change. Hopefully that will change. And when you look at the fact that Jonah was virtually dead and came back to life, look at who he's going to preach to, the Ninevites. They're kind of dead too. They're not, they're not in the bottom of the ocean, but man, they are spiritually dead. They are like the walking dead because they are living in absolutely deadly mortal sin. And God is giving them one chance here to repent. We're going to see what happens as we go on in this study of the book of Jonah on the Faith Explained. I'm your host, Cale Clark. And so that's, that's the great parallel here. And of course, Jesus mentions the book of Jonah in the Gospel of Matthew. Here's what he says, and you can read this in Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew 12, chapter 30, uh, sorry, Matthew 12, verses 38 to 42, uh, we read these words. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to Jesus, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so for three days and three nights... The Son of Man will be, will be in the heart of the earth. The people of Nineveh 
will rise up at the judgment with, with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the proclamation of Jonah and see something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to listen to the wisdom of Solomon and see something greater than Solomon is here. So just to put this in context, what's going on here in the ministry of Jesus at this time, Jesus has been performing exorcisms and his opponents have said, well, the reason why he can do this is because the devil is helping him. And Jesus says, that makes absolutely no sense. Number one, why would Satan bust up his own kingdom? And he also said, you got to be really careful here because you're going to have to give an account at the end of days. And if you're going to say that my power came from the evil one, well, that's, that's going to be laid at your feet at the judgment. You're going to have to answer for this. And so these scribes are kind of asking Jesus for a sign. You know, you're talking about warnings of judgment. How, how do you have this authority? How do we know that you're a legitimate exorcist? And that's when they say, listen, we want to see a sign from you. Uh, it's hard to say what, what they're looking for exactly. Um, it kind of reminds us of what St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that uh, Jews look for signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And Lord knows, <laughs> no pun intended, Jesus had provided plenty of signs and miracles. But in Jesus' time, in Jesus' day, there were many other people who claim to be the Messiah, not just Jesus. This is something that you might not know about the history of the time. There was someone named Thutis, and he came slightly after Jesus. He thought he was the Messiah. And he said, and this is around the year 45 AD, he said that when he commanded, he was going to give a sign. He was going to command the waters of the Jordan River to be parted. You know, just like the Red Sea was parted for the Israelites when they escaped Egypt. Uh, well, clearly that didn't happen. Uh, there was another messianic claimant, uh, this Jew, this unnamed Jew who came from Egypt, and this was around 56 AD. He said that when he gave a command, the very walls of Jerusalem would absolutely collapse into ruins. Well, didn't happen either, as you, as you might have imagined. In every case, when there are these other claimants to be the Messiah, and even this happened to Jesus too, Rome always reacted with military might and brutality. Uh, even the crucifixion of Jesus is an example of this. Anyone who would set themselves up as the Messiah or some sort of a, a ruler over the Jews was absolutely taken care of uh, with a heavy hand. So maybe this is the kind of sign that the scribes and the Pharisees are looking for from Jesus. And Jesus is not going to do that. He, he's not, he's not going to do miracles on demand. But this is what he does say. He says, an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign. An evil and adulterous generation. Where does that come from? That comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 57, verse 3. It says, as for you, come here, you children of a sorceress, you offspring of an, of an adulterer and a whore. But, but what's, what, what's even more striking is when you look at this verse in the Aramaic, now, in, in the synagogues of Jesus' day, when people would study the scriptures, very often they would use the Aramaic paraphrase of the, of the Old Testament. It was kind of like uh, the street language version of the Bible. And here's what it says in the Aramaic of Isaiah 57, verse 3. But you draw near people of the generation 
whose deeds are evil, whose plant was from a holy plant, and they are adulterers and harlots. And so this is kind of interesting because Jesus says it's an, an evil and adulterous generation. And that's exactly what it says in the Aramaic, in the Aramaic paraphrase of Isaiah 57.3. People of the generation whose deeds are evil and who are adulterers. And really, they're spiritual adulterers. And so this is what Jesus says. An evil and adulterous generation looks for a sign. What's also interesting, and Dr. Craig Evans points this out, in the very next verse of Isaiah, in Isaiah 57, 4, Isaiah says, Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? So the, the, it really, this might mean that the Pharisees, the scribes, are kind of mocking Jesus by asking him for a sign. They're kind of sticking out their tongue and saying, nah, 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 we don't really think you're the Messiah. So... They're, 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 they're really making fun of him. And so Jesus is none too pleased about this. He says, you're not going to get what you're looking for except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now I'm going to talk in the next episode about what that sign might be. And you say, well, of course, it's the resurrection. Jonah's in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Jesus is in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Yeah, yeah. But there might be something more to this as well. But here, here's a funny story for you uh, just to, as we depart today. Uh, in the Talmud... Uh, there was a rabbi named Rabbi Yose Ben Kizma, and he had disciples who used to ask him, hey, when is the Messiah going to come? <laughs> he already did come. His name was Jesus. But his disciples used to ask him, hey, when's the Messiah going to come? And he said, I don't want to give an answer. I fear giving an answer because you're going to demand a sign of me to prove that my answer is correct. And so his disciples told him, oh, don't worry. We're not going to ask a sign of you. So he said, okay, okay, I'll answer you. All right, the Messiah will come when the gate of the city of Caesarea Philippi falls down, is rebuilt, falls down again, and is again rebuilt, and then falls down a third time. Before it can be rebuilt again, the son of David will come. That's when the Messiah is going to come. Then they said to him, Master, give us a sign. He said, did you not just tell me that you would not demand a sign? Oh, it's so exasperating. So, uh, a little humor there from the rabbis, the story of Rabbi Jose Ben Kizma. Thanks for joining me today on The Faith Explained. I'm your host, Kale Clark. If you missed an episode, you can always catch them in podcast form on the relevant radio app. I'll join you in the next one, and I'll be with you later today at 5 p.m. Central, right here on Relevant Radio for The Kale Clark Show. Until next time, God bless you.